The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Business Podcast. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. This week, a gluttony and greed special. We'll look at the effects of overeating and overspending. Many of us have had a bank holiday weekend full of roast dinners, hot cross buns and chocolate eggs. So what better time for an in-depth look at the food industry? We'll ask if food companies have any responsibility for our health. Also this week, we're delighted to have Carmen Reinhardt, one of the most influential economists working today. She warns that governments are spending too much and not doing enough to reduce national debt. Go on like this and the UK could face a Greek-style debt crisis. Something has to be done. We know what the some things are and they don't involve bigger spending and lower taxes. Two big problems, one big podcast. This is The Business from The Guardian. And joining me for the first half of today's show, we have Dr. David Kessler and Richard Watts. David Kessler is a former head of the United States Food and Drug Administration and author of a new book called The End of Overeating. In it, he describes his own battle to resist fatty foods and he likens junk food to addictive drugs. Richard Watts works for the campaign group Sustain, which lobbies the British government on farming and fast food marketing. Welcome to you both. David Kessler, let's begin with you. Is obesity the fault of us as consumers or the fault of those evil food companies? It's a very interesting question because I started off wanting to understand why that chocolate chip cookie has such power over me. I was watching the Oprah Winfrey show uh, one night and there was a woman on it, uh, very well spoken, very well educated, very sophisticated in all aspects of her life. And she said, I eat When my husband goes off to work in the morning, I eat before he comes home at night. I eat when I'm happy. I eat when I'm sad. I eat when I'm hungry. I eat when I'm not hungry. And then there was that moment where she said, and I don't like myself. So what I was very interested in the research we did over the last seven years was to understand why this woman and millions of others like her, and I could relate, why do we... Why was she doing something she didn't want to be doing? And what we now know is that very salient stimuli, stimuli like fat, sugar, and salt, super stimuli, when you put them together, have a way of capturing the brain, activating certain of the reward circuits. There's an increased arousal. There's that focused uh, attention. And we can see on those brain scans how the brain gets hijacked. You asked me a question, whose fault this was? The fact is, the food industry has taken, and it's part of their business plans over the last several decades. It's been to take fat, sugar, and salt, put it on every corner, make it available 24-7, make it socially acceptable to eat any time, make food into entertainment, add the emotional gloss of advertising. In the States, we're living in a food carnival. What did we expect to happen? When we did that. Give me an example of a particular food that sums up everything you're talking about. 
you, you have to come uh, uh, to the States. Uh, walk into any uh, dining establishment in the States. Pick uh, buffalo wings, uh, a very popular appetizer. Right? What are they? They take the fatty part of the chicken, the wing. They fry it in the manufacturing plant first. That adds, that loads 30, 40% fat. They fry it again in the uh, kitchen. They add this red sauce, a spicy red sauce that is fat uh, and sugar. There's a white creamy sauce on the side, uh, fat and salt. What is it? It's fat on fat on fat on fat on sugar on fat and salt. That's what we're eating. You have your equivalents uh, here uh, in the UK. Richard Watts uh, of Sustain. Um, if I'm ordering something called a buffalo wing, I presumably know it's not going to be very good for me. So is that the food company's fault or my fault that I'm eating that? Well, I, I don't entirely accept the assertion that lots of people know exactly what they're eating. Actually, there's an article in, an example that David quoted in one of his articles of one of the grilled chicken things, which people naturally perceived as healthy without seeing all of the uh, layering of fat that went into and sugar that went into this thing before it ever went anywhere near a grill. Uh, we know people are actually very bad at interpreting what the uh, hidden ingredients of a uh, food is. And we also know that things like salt get to be an acquired taste. So actually you start, start to not taste it uh, after a bit. And so quite high levels can be consumed in a pretty hidden way. You know, I don't want to take away the kind of individual responsibility for people eating the way they do. But given, as David said, you know, our perception of what is a normal diet is shaped by what's around us and that is you know easy access to fast food that's cheap and heavily marketed then you know that shapes people's perception of what a normal diet is okay richard but then it sounds like this entire problem can be solved simply by telling us what's in the food better food labeling that sort sort it all i think that would help i don't think it would solve the entire problem because i don't think that particularly shifts what people's perception of a normal diet is but you know we welcome the fact that some companies in the uk are pursuing traffic light labeling which is much more transparent away than i've seen elsewhere certainly than some in the food industry would like it to be uh, of actually showing people the ingredients within a food but that doesn't tackle food marketing and we know 500 million pounds a year is spent at marketing unhealthy food primarily to children let alone the uh, on tv let alone other forms of marketing uh, and it doesn't get away from the fact that highly processed food tends to be cheaper and more easily available and so it's easier to get david is this a case of food companies actually behaving in a malevolent way or are they simply just doing taking the the cheaper cheapest route possible they understood the inputs they understood that fat sugar and salt stimulate they understood the outputs that people come back for more. They designed food. They optimized food for the bliss point. Do they understand the science? No. But now that we have the science, the question is, what are they going to be? Go back in history. Understand food processing. Back in the 1930s, 1940s, in order to feed millions of people, the industry learned how to process food. There were advantages. It was economical. You're able to ship food over long distance, increase shelf lives. What happened? The food industry learned how to dial in fat, sugar, and salt into that food. And not only dial in the fat, sugar, and salt, they learned to take out anything that slowed down eating. So anything that was objectionable 
in any way where you had to chew is now out of the food. So in essence, we're eating adult baby food. Food goes down in a whoosh. It used to be, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we would chew on average about 20, 30 times per bite. Today, you know, just a crisp, I mean, how long does it take you before it goes down? All we're doing when we eat you know, fat and sugar, fat and salt, fat, sugar and salt is, we're in essence, self-stimulating ourselves. Okay, but you were head of the uh, Food and Drug Administration. You were kind of the, the chief food watchdog. Um, it's up to people like you to stop food companies doing this. Stop food companies? Um, or you know, the question really is, what's the legitimate role for government? When I was head of FDA, we spent a lot of time uh, putting what we call in the States the nutrition facts panel, the disclosure, how much calories, uh, fat, uh, sugar, and salt on the, on the product. We did that on all processed foods. One of, uh, I was talking to someone in the food industry uh, a little while back when I was doing the book, and he said, Kessler, this obesity epidemic is your fault. I said, what are you talking about? He says, you, you did a good job on packaged foods. But increasingly, certainly in the States, people are eating uh, takeouts. They're eating in restaurants. There's no labeling uh, there. And that's where the explosion comes. You look at uh, the average uh, entree in the States at some 1,500 uh, calories. You know what the, they say in the food industry, when in doubt, add bacon and cheese to it. And when you try and regulate them, how do food companies react? There are... Uh, look at the um, nutrition facts panel. They fought a tooth and nail uh, when we tried to do it. Now, uh, if you try to change it, uh, they would fight equally to change it. So they do uh, adapt uh, eventually. Richard Watts, come back in here. I mean, when David compares fast food to baby food, uh, isn't there an element in this that we just assume that all processed factory-made food is just in automatically bad? I think that some companies, to their credit, are making some effort, and we've seen it primarily in salt in the UK, to try and make some of their processed foods more healthier. And I think the Food Standards Agency in the UK should be congratulated uh, to some extent for the work it's done on reducing salt levels. And it's not to say there aren't any healthy processed foods uh, from Sustain's point of view, we're also very worried about the sustainability consequences of some of the processed foods as well. So the energy use, the fact that they're transported vast distances, uh, the provenance of some of the products that go into them. And uh, uh, I think the fact that some of this food is so heavily processed does, as David you know, says very compellingly, uh, make it changes our relationship with the way we consume it in a way that actually isn't so good for our, our relationship with food. So... I think a lot of the points that are being made about the problems associated with processed food are, are right. What we do about getting away from that in a society where all of us are incredibly busy is, is very difficult. David, your book's called The End of Overeating. Uh, that sounds quite optimistic. How do we go? How do we come to the end of overeating? I was on a panel with four leading diabetologists in the States a little while back, and, and I showed how the, our behavior was becoming conditioned and driven. Um, they were anything but optimistic. They, in fact, looked at the data and said, we're toast as a country. I don't share that view. Uh, I think we can turn this around. 
uh, I understand how difficult uh, it's going to be. We've been talking about food and how food is layered and loaded and processed uh, with fat, sugar, and salt. I think we've been, in some ways, pretty generous because much of what we're talking about really isn't food. And I think what you will see over the next uh, decade or two is a movement that is starting. It's small, but a movement toward, and I think the UK has an advantage over the states, it's more locally grown uh, foods, real foods, whole foods, honest foods, and less processed foods. And certainly uh, these huge portions I think people are going to understand that much of that uh, isn't really food. It's just layered fat, sugar, and salt. Richard, this sounds like it's quite a heavy role for government to to hear. I I think inevitably there has to be. And if you look at the four marketing P's that the food companies look at from product, price, placement, promotion, I think actually there's a role for government intervention in all of those. Uh, The products, I think we need to go further and faster on some of the reformulation work that's already gone on. Price, I think now the time has come for a serious debate about whether we need uh, taxes on some products, particularly soft drinks, is a campaign that's going well in the States, and I think we should look at that here. Placement, we need to look at some of the planning rules that dictate the fact that big supermarkets have massively preferential uh, ways of getting in some of their their stores. But also, going up the Holloway Road near where I live, it's only kebab shops and fried chicken outlets, and actually what we can do to get some kind of diversity in the retail of food. And also promotion as well. We need, for example, much tougher advertising rules. We need a 9pm watershed on unhealthy food ads. And really to get to grips with the fact that internet and new technology is being used to promote food much more surreptitiously to children than it ever has been before in a way that completely cuts the opportunity for parents uh, to monitor what media their kids are getting out of the way. But but look at the great success, the the one public health success, you know, that we've had in, you know, a, a number of our countries and that of tobacco. Sure, government regulation has been important, but the real success is due to the fact we now look at that product very differently. And how do we as individuals go about looking at fast food or junk food differently? Give us three tips. You know, you remember when that child came to their parent and said, Mommy, Daddy, please don't smoke. Where we have to get to is to um, the point where that child goes to their parent and say, Mommy, Daddy, please don't take me to that fast food restaurant. It's when we have a, uh, the campaigns, uh, certainly in the States, I mean, that are targeted against big food. And I don't mean corporate big. I mean, literally big food. Uh, we, we can uh, be just as satisfied uh, and eat uh, half as much. And I think also uh, the campaigns against uh, the food that is le- loaded and layered with fat, sugar, and salt. It's very hard for me to even see how you can put a green light on any processed uh, food. Uh, I think there is a movement increasingly. This is what we're putting in our bodies. This is what we're serving uh, to our families uh, to look at much of the processed food and say, that's not real food. That's not what I want. That's not going to satiate me. That's not going to give me nourishment. I really want real food. Okay, David Kessler, Richard Watts, thank you both very much. This is The Business from The Guardian. So, on the day that the general election was finally called, we have in the studio an economist that all prospective chancellors should listen to. Carmen Reinhart has the ear of governments around the world. 
Which is just as well, really, because what she has to say is really rather worrying. An expert on banking crises, she now warns that we face something even bigger, a government debt crisis. Professor Reinhardt, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that uh, banking crises in this round, like historically, are associated with severe and prolonged recessions. And so in addition to bailouts, in addition to stimulus packages, government revenues suffer at every level and big deficits uh, lead to very sharp run-ups in government debt. And so uh, the combination of these events uh, leaves governments very vulnerable to one type of debt crisis or another. There are gradations, right, of debt crises. You can have the extreme uh, debt crisis, which is a default, but the more likely outcomes involve things like downgrades in credit ratings and so on. So just since it's been a long time uh, since we had a government debt crisis in, in the West, what kind of what does a government debt crisis look like in, in, your, in your view? The crises, again, have come in different shades. If you have your extreme government catastrophe, as in Argentina 2001, is um, there is absolutely nothing that is normal. It, it, interest rates may be an elusive concept since banks don't lend often bank holidays accompany these events. It's it's very extreme. You're sh- the country's shut out from international capital markets, so you're talking about infinite interest rates. Uh, that's in a very ugly extreme scenario. More moderate uh, restructurings uh, still involve very big interest penalties, still involve severe downturns. In the majority of cases, they have involved inflation spikes as well. Now, you've mentioned Greece, you've mentioned Argentina, but people might say, well, hang on, Britain or America, these are large countries which have got an impeccable credit record. So surely the same thing's not going to happen here. Well, it, 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 would take, it would take a lot. The current path that both the U.S. and the U.K. are on is not a sustainable path. So, so you cannot have going forward the kinds of debt profiles that, that are being projected at this stage. Give me a risk rating. And, and let, me, let, me, let, me, let me also say that one thing that distinguishes the U.K. and the U.S. from Japan, which is managed 200% Debt to G- public debt to GDP is Japan as a whole still lends to the rest of the world. Both the UK and the US borrow from the rest of the world. Uh, so the scope for that kind of buildup in debts is, well, you know, Japan has 200 public debt, a percent of uh, public debt to GDP. That's just not a feasible option for, for Britain or for the US. So you're saying because Japan save more and therefore lend out more of their own money to the rest of the world, they're slightly insulated, whereas because we haven't saved that much, Absolutely. And we, we rely upon international markets. That is markets. precisely what I'm saying. And give me a risk rating for the UK and the US at the moment. How uh, much should we be worried? I think over the very near term, this is part of being in a recession, I don't think. I think uh, if a year from now we don't have an articulated plan to reduce the uh, debt profile, then we should be very worried. Uh, I think 
going back to the Japanese example, even Japan, which lends to the rest of the world, was downgraded several times after its major financial crisis. And I think the UK and the US would be game uh, for downgrades and all that that entails. So, so the low interest rate environment that is being taken for granted would, would be challenged. And um, I think that is the more realistic scenario for the US and UK in which you get unpleasant surprises uh, in interest rates. And the placement of debt that we have taken for granted uh, becomes a shakier process. Now, you're talking about a very grisly economic scenario, but the decisions that you're calling to be made have to be made by politicians. Absolutely. How far do you think politicians in America or or over here have woken up to the kind of things you're saying? I I think even if they have, in both sides of the Atlantic, there's denial. There's the expectations that, well, if the economy improves, we're somehow one way or another going to get out of this. But even absent the cases of outright denial, that there's recognition that, you know, something has to be done, we know what the some things are, and they don't involve bigger spending and lower taxes. Uh, They involve quite the opposite, which is very much a very tough medicine uh, for the economy that the politicians have to deliver. This is not a popularity contest. Uh, And because it's not a popularity contest, one very plausible scenario, both in the U.S. and in the U.K., is that a wake-up call may be needed. Uh, Let me give you an example. In the mid-1990s, Canada was faced with a very worrisome debt profile, even without fully taking into account contingent liabilities within both in the U.K. and the U.S. are great, the debt profile was 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 definitely out of control. And lo and behold, in, in December of 1994, early 1995, comes the Mexican peso crisis. You may wonder why I'm talking about the Mexican peso crisis when I'm talking about Canada, but the point was that around the Mexican crisis, Canadian spreads began to move in tandem with emerging markets. And spreads began to widen, and the Canadian dollar began to slide against the U.S. dollar, so much so that the central bank raised interest rates to stem the slide of the Canadian dollar. And the fact that Canada started looking a lot like an emerging market was a major wake-up call uh, to politicians that, whoa, something has to be done here. And, and so it may take that. Okay, let's end with me putting three criticisms of your argument to you. Okay. And I just want a brief response for each one. Okay, so first criticism. It's not as if we're going to face a kind of credit market strike of the kind that you're talking about because the world is in stagnation. Where else are these guys going to lend money to? What's your response to that? The fact that everybody's trying to issue debt does call into question what your alternatives are, but let us not forget that for the time being, emerging markets can fill a hole. Uh, Let us not forget that countries like China and India have started to play around with shifting some of their reserves into gold, which the IMF is selling. Let us not forget that actually spreads, which usually 
in the U.S., the sovereign ceiling was something that had not been violated, is being violated. We can't take for granted low interest rates. Yes, we can issue the debt, uh, but the debt servicing costs is something that we can't take for granted. Okay, second criticism. We're going into a world in which uh, the West faces a long period of stagnant economic growth. And especially in the UK and the US, we've relied so much upon finance to provide tax revenues and for finance to be the motor of our economy. That's not not going to be the case in the future. We need extra government spending to create the industries of the future, green technology or or whatever. If the path is one in which the shift upwards in government spending is permanent, then there's got to be a twist somewhere on the revenue side. Somebody's paying more taxes. And it is also very much those expectations of higher taxes that acts as a barrier uh, to growth and to the we need what we need is a shuffling, a reshuffling away from the financial industry, which grew a great deal during the boom years into other parts of the economy and very rapidly rising tax rates, tax burdens are not in line with that, that kind of reshuffling. Carmen Reinhart, thanks very much. And Carmen's book, This Time It's Different, is out now. Thanks again to all my guests, David Kessler, Richard Watts and Carmen Reinhardt. The producer was Phil Maynard and I'm Adit Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.